It's a beautiful uh, prayer, isn't it? Ephesians is uh, really sort of shot through uh, with wonderful prayers and um, a great encouragement uh, for how we ought to pray as well. Um, if you're ever wondering, what should I pray? Go and read uh, Ephesians, second half of Ephesians 1 or, or that back end of Ephesians 3 and you'll find plenty of good material there. Well, uh, Ephesians 3, it's, it's an interesting passage. Uh, in, in some ways, it it's, um, sort of sticks out a little bit from the rest of the letter and uh, there's a good reason for that, which we'll get to in a minute. Uh, when I was thinking about what, what's the crux, what's the heart of this passage, what title should I give it? I don't know if you've noticed, but the titles of the talks and the studies, uh, you know, they follow the same pattern, one something in Christ. You know, we've had, um, well, we started with blessed in Christ, but then, um, you know, that we are uh, all alive in Christ, that we are uh, one family in Christ. And this one was harder to work out, but I think uh, where I've actually landed, which is different to what's on your handout there, is one perspective in Christ, one perspective, one way of seeing things that is actually very different to the way that those who aren't in Christ see things, see the world, that the gospel gives us a unique perspective uh, on life and not something that we would work out on our own. And I think that's really important. We need the gospel to shine its light on life and its circumstances, life and our circumstances, so that we can see how things really are. We can see things from God's perspective. So let's, let's pray that uh, Ephesians 3 would help us with doing just that. Heavenly Father, uh, yeah, we just prayed that we uh, see only dimly, as through a glass darkly, uh, what is really happening in the world and even our view of you can be obscured. So Father, we are so grateful for your word, your word which unveils things, which reveals what is true, reveals your plans and what you are doing even now. Father, we ask that you'd help us to understand how your big plans relate to our small lives. Uh, help us to do that so that we can, um, we can plug in uh, and see things truly, see things as they really are and live truly as well as a result. Live confidently in Christ, uh, not in fear of the world and live confidently in love, in love for you and for others. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, do you ever wonder as you look around the world if God really knows what he's doing. Do you ever watch the news and see all the horrors? They change from one week to the next, don't they? And that's about as long as they last in our memories. Uh, COVID all over the world, of course. We're just hearing from uh, Dan and Rachel about the second, I don't know, third wave over there in Thailand. We've, of course, seen images of... Um, mass cremations alongside the Ganges in India because they're just plucking bodies out of the river. Earthquakes in China this week, ruins from bomb strikes in Gaza. Does God really know what he's doing? We question, do you question, either his goodness or his power when you see these things? It wouldn't be surprising if you do. Closer to home, do you ever find yourself considering your own life and circumstances, your own 
ailments and griefs and question why a loving God allows the things that he does. And even closer to home, do you ever look truly into your own heart and feel like you're stuck in a rut, that God isn't powerful in you, that he isn't at work in you, that you're still, after years and years, still giving in to the same old sins, the same old ways. And, and then do you question why God doesn't help you to change or doesn't seem to? Now, all these questions from the macro to, to the micro, all these questions and many more are very natural ones to ask when life and faith seem to conflict. We need God to show us that things aren't always as they seem or as they feel, that there is more to life than meets the eye. And that's really what God is doing for us in this chapter, chapter 3 of Ephesians that we're reading today. So if you're someone with questions, those kinds of questions, then it's a really great day to be here at church. Now Ephesians 3, it's one of those passages that, that feels a little bit like a detour. You know when you're in a rush and you're trying to get somewhere and you come to an intersection and you see that, you know, the block across the road and the yellow and black sign, detour, go this way, and you think, oh great, how long is this going to take? How much out of my way do I have to go? It's not the most positive moment in your trip, is it, where you have to kind of turn the wheel and uh, off you go. Well, I think Ephesians 3 is a little bit like that at the beginning. I mean, if you have a look, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, and he's obviously referring to what he's just been talking about, how we've all been made one family in Christ, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash, <laughs> see that, that long dash there at the end of the verse, and then he goes, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. And he goes off on what seems like this big tangent. He was going to say something great. For this reason, I, Paul... Oh, by the way, you know, do you ever have those conversations with people? You're talking about gardening and all of a sudden someone says, Oh, did I ever tell you how my great-aunt Ethel used to fly crop dusters over Sweden? And you're sort of like, didn't see that coming... It's a little, it feels at least, a little bit like that. In fact, you could go right from the very end of chapter 2 straight to the very beginning of chapter 4 and not feel like you'd missed a beat. Uh, we read at the end of chapter 22, In Him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. And then he goes on to talk about how to live in God's family. So as just said in chapter 2, God has, in Christ, made us all one family. Chapter 4, let's talk about how to live as God's family. And then there's the passage about the Swedish auntie in the middle. Okay? Uh, but it's, there's a reason for it. There's a, there is a very good reason for it. Uh, let's dig in and see what that is. Now, one of the reasons it feels a bit odd is that all of a sudden, you know, Paul has been presenting Christ front and centre up until this point. And now it feels like he's gotten distracted and he's talking about himself. Paul does this from time to time and you think, hmm, what are you on about, Paul? You know, why, why talk about yourself? What's he doing here? 
Is it like a, a hero story? Does Paul want to impress the Ephesians? He talks about things like uh, how much he's suffered. He talks about his special job as an apostle to the Gentiles that nobody else has. He talks about the insight that God has given him and him alone. And it sounds like, if you read it one way, that Paul is just sort of big noting himself. But if you take a closer look, you'll see that that's not it at all. Because Paul isn't claiming to be a hero, but a servant. Do you see that in verse 7? I became a servant of this gospel. The word is actually slave. I became a slave of the gospel. Uh, And then in verse 8, he calls himself less than the least. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. So he's not elevating himself. He's saying, no, no, I'm, I'm really nothing. And even the insight that he has, he didn't work it out. All that is a gift from God, as is his position as an apostle, all these things. He, he knows they're totally undeserved by God's grace. So why then is Paul talking about himself? Well, he's not trying to draw attention to himself. Rather, he wants to show that his own life is a great example of the power of God at work, even though it may not look like it at first. So do you know, notice back in verse 1... Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. This is the first time in the letter that Paul has dropped that he is in jail. He's writing this letter to the Ephesians from prison. Now, that could be problematic for the Ephesians, as in, they could think that this wonderful news that you have to declare to us, Paul well, how does that line up with your own personal circumstances? If you are so free in Christ, well, what does that matter if you are in chains in prison? Okay? And, and we know that this is on Paul's mind because have a look down at verse 13, at the end of this sort of aside. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. You see his concern? That they will be discouraged because of his circumstances, because of the fact that he is in prison. Paul wants them to know that far from being discouraged, they ought to be encouraged, they ought to be built up because of his confidence in Christ that they ought to share. So in verse, um, yeah, between verses 1 and 13, verses uh, 2 to 12, Paul explains all this, why they... Far from being discouraged by his chains and suffering, they should see, they should understand and see in him the pattern that suffering is the means to glory. And if you think about the gospel, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? That Christ's suffering was his means to glory and ours. And so Paul is saying that that is reflected in his own life and ministry. The key word uh, in Paul's explanation of what's happening is mystery, mystery. And at first it does sound a little bit mysterious what he's talking about. If you have a look at verses 2 to 5, it sounds a little bit nudge, nudge, wink, wink. He doesn't kind of say much, he just refers to things. He says, surely surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. No, sorry, must have missed that memo. Um, Uh, That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. 
Oh, sorry, I didn't see that letter either, Paul. Can you just tell me what you're talking about? Are you going to get there? Um, so at first it does feel a little bit mysterious, but Paul's point is actually that what was a mystery is a mystery no longer. And in verse 6, he lets the cat out of the bag. He says it, says it plain. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. The key word is obviously together, that God's plan is not only for one nation, God's plan is for all nations. And this is what was a mystery but has now been made known. Now, you might ask, well, I already knew that, what's, what's so mysterious? Or you might ask, what's so great about that? Like, how is that relevant to my life? And how does that answer any of life's big questions that that's God's plan? Well, here it is. Here's why it matters. Here's what it means. The world and everything that happens in it is no accident. In fact, your life is not meaningless because it is encircled in this plan of God. The pain and the suffering that occurs will end and it does have a purpose. There is hope and that is because God is at work building an everlasting family made up of people from every nation and bound together as one body by their common faith in Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we struggle to tap into that because it's so big, God's plan. What he wants us to know is that every single one of us fits in it and has our place and our part to play. See, what was a mystery for Paul, and in his time, has become history, become reality. And Paul's job is to help people see what that really means. And we need to pay attention. We need to look closely because we can be so blind. We can be so dead to these big realities, these spiritual and eternal realities that ought to be the perspective that shape, that give shape to life. We can hear people say, God's got a plan, And we can say, so what? I don't get why that matters to me and why I've still got to mow the lawn and mark those assignments and decide what to have for dinner and front up to work again tomorrow. How how does it relate? Our heads can be so head down in the nitty-gritty. But in verse 9, Paul is the guy who gets to share the world's best-kept and most amazing secret. You see, he wants the Ephesians to see what heaven sees. He wants the Ephesians to see what heaven sees even now. He wants to unveil to their earthly eyes and to ours what could otherwise only be seen from the great grandstand of heaven. Have a look at verses 9 and 10. Paul's ministry is to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. But here it is, verse 10. His intent was that now through the church, that's you, that's us, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That God is something doing something in you, in us, that is a declaration to heaven. 
Heaven sees something that I think often we don't see. From ground level, we look around and we think, pretty ordinary. But from heaven, they see something extraordinary. So here are a few examples. We sing some songs together, just like we did this morning. And perhaps we wish it sounded a bit better. Perhaps we wish our voices had the strength that they used to when we were younger. Perhaps we wish we could sing beautiful harmonies, but we can barely hold a tune. But our song rises to heaven as the purest praise because of Jesus Christ. Our voices, our minds and our hearts perfectly in tune and undeniable tribute to the glory and goodness and grace of God. That's what's heard in heaven. That's amazing, isn't it? Our ordinary voices heard in heaven as the pure praise of God. We pray together and perhaps we struggle to stay focused. I don't know how much of Tim's prayer you can remember. I don't know how much of Tim's prayer he can remember. And yet, what is heard in heaven is actually the confident chorus of the children of God seeking the perfect will of our Heavenly Father. And like any good dad, he loves to hear our clamour and to give us the good things that we ask for and even better. And heaven, remember, is watching on and listening in. And heaven is blown away at the freedom and the confidence with which we approach the throne of Almighty God. Because by what right, by what merit do we do that? How do we so boldly approach God with prayers and requests and almost demands? Because we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. And so God welcomes us. See, do you see how it works? We feel like we're doing these really ordinary, maybe mundane things, but heaven knows, heaven sees, heaven hears what is really going on, and heaven is astounded. When I say heaven, I mean all the angels and all the spiritual powers and all the authorities, even, even actually the ones on the dark side of things, they are amazed. By what? By you. By the manifold wisdom of God displayed in the church, through the church. This meeting of very ordinary people bound together by the extraordinary gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we read the Bible together. And to be honest, sometimes it can feel a bit dry, can't it? And we find so much of it plain confusing and requiring great explanation, but even then, in heaven, God is perfectly satisfied with us and he delights that through Jesus Christ, we do know him and we're perfectly united to him. It goes beyond what we do here as well, in this hour or so on a Sunday. We speak to each other after church or during the week and most of the time we probably struggle to get past uh, the concerns of this world. But even then, heaven listens in and hears more than the words that we say. Because heaven sees people who 
by any other rights should be enemies or at least holding each other at arm's length and they see people who are now brothers and sisters in Christ whose mere existence in relationship with each other is a spur on to each other's faith. We may make a meal for a friend from church or look after their children or meet to read the Bible and pray with them or help them with an assignment or serve them in some other way and, you know, we wish we could do more or we worry that our efforts won't be appreciated and we're aware that our motives can be mixed even as we serve but from heaven it seems that the incomparable love of Jesus Christ has just burst forth in those small acts in a glittering rainbow of light. You think I'm overdoing this? Ask heaven. It's very hard for us to see, but it's what's true. Praise God. See, everything which seems so ordinary and everyday to us has the angels applauding in heaven (laughs) and the demons ducking for cover. And God himself absolutely delighted. Now, do you believe that? I suspect that you at least want to believe it. (laughs) But it sounds pretty far-fetched, doesn't it? And yet it shouldn't, you know. And verse 13 gives us a tip as to why. And that is that suffering comes before glory. Ordinary comes before extraordinary. Death comes before life. And so Paul says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. See, God works through sufferings to achieve glory. That that is his MO. That is always his way because it's his way in the cross. God works always through ordinary means to achieve extraordinary things. He works through ordinary people to to achieve extraordinary results. That's just his way. And it's what was going on in Paul's circumstances. It's what he wanted the Ephesians to understand about their circumstances. And it's what we need to understand about our circumstances and our identity and who we are in Christ. The Christians are people who follow the servant king. And for him, the cross came before the crown, didn't it? And it's the same with us. But the cross doesn't detract from the crown, does it? Does the cross take away from the crown? No, not at all. It only makes the crown all the more glorious that the cross came first. No one could see it at the time, of course. No one could look at the cross and see the glory, but now we can see because the mystery has been revealed and the tomb is empty and the king lives and we know that his suffering was for our glory. And so Paul prays. At the end of this detour, as it were, which of course we now see it wasn't, Paul prays. And what a prayer. What a prayer. He prays that the Ephesians will be strengthened in their faith in Christ Jesus. It's it's wrapped up in all sorts of massive, glorious language, so I'm just kind of cutting it down here. But he strengthens, he prays that they'll be strengthened in their faith in Christ Jesus, that they'll be strengthened in their experience of Christ's love, and that through it all, God would be glorified. 
But there is a word that gets repeated again and again, well, three times in those few verses of his prayer, and it's power. Power. Have a look, it's there in verse 16. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Verse 18, I pray that you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp his love. And again in verse 20, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. Do you hear what Paul is saying? He's saying, folks, you know where true power lies? It doesn't lie in those who've put me in chains. It, It doesn't lie in the power of the circumstances or the people around us. Power, true power lies in God himself. That's where the strength is. That's where the glory is. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they will have a true and right perspective on life. That they won't be overwhelmed or discouraged no matter what is going on in them or around them. But instead that they will know the power of Jesus Christ. The power of the one who had such great power that death could not even keep its hold on him and that through his suffering he achieved glory for us see we need this perspective don't we we need to be lifted out from our troubles and we need to be shown what god has done for us in christ jesus so that our faith will be strengthened so that we will persevere in the power that he provides persevere in faith to the end because otherwise, life's a dud, isn't it? Really not worth living. But in Christ, in Christ we have everything and all we need because we have him. And all the hope and the power and the glory that belongs to him is ours as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, You know how we came here this morning. You know uh, the thoughts in our minds and the circumstances in our lives. You know the things that were weighing on us. And you knew that, as we always do, we need to have our eyes lifted to heaven. And that the means of having our eyes lifted to heaven is seeing that Christ is the one who came from heaven to earth for us that he might experience suffering in our place and then be raised to glory for us and our benefit. Father, we pray that you would help us to see what heaven sees, to see the mighty work that Jesus has already done, to be confident in him so that we might trust him and him alone, so that we might have every reason to look beyond our circumstances and know that we have all that we need in Christ. Help us to know his great love for us, his immeasurable, incomparable, high, deep, wide and long love so that we'll be strengthened in our faith, continuing to the end and enjoying you forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.